Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Ahoy there. Good morning. It's me. It's me here again. Hi. Uh, my name's Reed. Yes. I am I'm one of the persons here, one of the staff persons. Bro Leary, I almost wept when he walked in this morning. I didn't know he was going to be here. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful boy. Thank you. Um, I'm not supposed to be up here. Once again, we've had a staff person fall ill. Not COVID, so the test says, but Nat is feeling pretty bad, so... She's like, ah, I don't think I'm going to be able to preach. She feels terrible about it. She's very sorry. I'm sure she would have loved to talk to you all about mourning. Anyway, so yesterday, as Derek and I are pulling out of the driveway of my house to go to St. Louis for Jake and Kayla's wedding, yes, what a time. Uh, I just in texting, we're figuring out, oh, okay, she's actually, she's not going to be preaching don't worry about it. I've got sad sermons. I've got stuff from in the catalog, in the archives somewhere. So as Derek is driving and we're going to St. Louis, I'm on my phone on Google Docs, like working on this sermon that is actually uh, adapted from a sermon that I gave several years ago uh, when we were doing the wisdom books. And I preached on Ecclesiastes. And uh, some of you were here for that. And it was an intense time. So, I hope you're ready for an intense time. <sighs> Let's take a deep breath. <sighs> Some, yes? Ah, yes. Did anybody not get, we were handing out little slips of paper, quarter sheets with a pen. Does anybody need one? Literally not a person needs one? Zach, just Zach. Zach is the only one who needs one, right here. Here comes the pin. Need another one. That one went under the thing. No one needs one, too. <clears throat> also, happy football day. Go Chiefs. Not worried about the Cardinals. I'm worried about the Bills. We good? Okay. This is some bright morning or crookedness revisited or fumbling presence better than T's and P's absence or miracle of the empty hands. Ecclesiastes 7. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. February 7th, 2017 was a Tuesday. Uh, that morning, I was home with Leanne and Graham, who was three at the time, having coffee before heading off to work, and the phone rang. It was my friend, Dylan Herricks, longtime CCF friend, uh, who I had done discipleship with for a number of years. 
Uh, picked up. Hey, man, how's it going? Uh, his voice was trembling. Not good. A breath. Micah passed away last night. He struggled to get it out. I was confused. It took me a second uh, to register what he was saying. And I was trying to figure out who he was talking about. I think I, he must have meant someone other than who he really did mean. Uh, Micah was his two-year-old son. What? Oh my God, what? That's, just, that's all I could say. What? Oh my God, what? Trembling, breathing, on the phone, standing in my kitchen, listening to Dylan breathe, at the same time, uh, watching and listening to the, the shuffle and the sing-songy murmur of my own playing, still breathing, three-and-a-half-year-old preschooler, we hung up. I drove down to St. Louis uh, to be with him. So I've been to the House of Mourning, and there is a uniquely heavy silence there after its residents have been plunged into deep darkness from tragic loss. It is a silence that is weighted heavily with disorientation, exhaustion, grief. I've really only visited there myself, uh, but I've talked to many over the years now a lot of former CCF people who have found themselves suddenly forced to move in. All of these terrible phone calls. A friend who unexpectedly discovered one day that their spouse had been having an affair almost since the beginning of their marriage. A friend uh, who, who was and who still is the embodiment of what our grandparents mean when they say, a good man, diligent, decent, utterly selfless, salt of the earth, good person, and yet uh, at a time with a wife and three young children to take care of was unjustly and suddenly just fired from his job. How am I going to take care of these people? Friends who've lost moms to cancer, dads to suicide. Blessed are those who mourn. Really, Jesus? Really? Are you sure about that? Have you gotten those phone calls? Mourning, um, it's, it's an ache that we feel. I think that we, we choose to go into and feel in the wake of loss. Uh, but we lose many things besides just the ones that we love. Those are not the only losses. Some of us know loss in the form of having been rejected. Some of us know it in the form of deep disappointment. I thought it was like this, but it's not. I thought you were like that, but you're not. Some of us know it in injury. You had all these plans, and then suddenly you can't do the things that you could do before. 
Even change is a form of loss. Leaving the home that you've lived in your whole life, the family that you grew up with, that you've been nourished by, and moving to college away from them, and maybe it doesn't quite dawn on you the moment that your parents drop you off on move-in day that like you may never live with them again, that that time is over, that can definitely be an occasion for grief, for mourning. I think about, I worked with, there was, there was a number of people on staff uh, at CCF for quite a long time before a handful of years ago when it changed over. Uh, Megan Trush, who is still here with us, and uh, Taylor Franklin had been here for a number of years. And when Megan left, her office like was I, I showed up to the house and it was just empty, and I didn't know, and it was just empty, and I just I sat there in the silence, and I grieved, and I actually I still find myself feeling that grief from time to time. So it can go on for a while. We all have some kind of loss, I think. But our losses are not all the same. But I think we're, we're familiar. We, we know something of mourning, of the sorrow that follows the loss of something that was dear to us, or even maybe just the sorrow we feel for the ones who are dear to us who have experienced loss. And there's something in these times of loss that uh, demands not speaking. It demands silence, but then also after a time, like it needs to be named, we have to say it. Uh, it is important to name our loss and not to just gloss over it or think that we have forgotten it or moved on, um, but to acknowledge that we have experienced loss. If that's a tragic death, or if it's my parent got sick, or if it's I moved away from home, or whatever it is, this relationship ended and I thought we were gonna go on forever, whatever it might be, it's important to name it. So I wanna do that. That's what you have paper for. I wanna take a minute now uh, of silence for you to name that. And I tell you what I wanna do. I want you to write something down, and then you have the option to keep it with you, okay? Keep it in your pocket. Do whatever you want with it. But I will also ask if you want to, if you're willing to, uh, I would like to collect them. I would like to read them. I'm not going to read them all out loud. I may read some of them out loud, even this morning. I won't. Uh, everybody's uh, privacy will be respected. I'm not going to name any names. But if you're like, no way, I don't want anybody to see this. I don't want it named even anonymously. Totally cool. Keep it to yourself. But if you're willing and you want to share any of your loss with me or maybe with others, I would ask you, I'm gonna to ask to collect it, okay? Are we clear on what's gonna happen? Okay, so take a minute now to name your loss. I had to leave the best Christian community I've ever had when I transferred schools, start all over again. My biological brother committed suicide. I've lost quality time with my sister due to constant sickness. Losing pieces of myself when I was sexually assaulted. 
lost my stepdad last October to cancer. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't. Um, both of my grandfathers, mine too. Lost friendships from childhood. Lost faith that my sister will turn out okay. There's something uh, in these moments that uh, demands silence. Uh, but also calls out for protest. Uh, th this this palpable feeling that I've I've read f six of these, and look at how many more. And I wasn't combing through for the r worst ones. Like I just I was just reading the ones that are here. But this this is not what it should be. This is not right. There's something deeply also unfair about it. It does not all befall us equally. I'm no more of a deserving husband or father or worker than any of these, and yet like, I still have my marriage and my children and my job. What do we, what do, we do? How do we reconcile these experiences? No ill befalls the righteous. Proverbs says. Bull, bull crap. What do we do with your lives, with my friends' lives who have lived well? You don't deserve this. And they end up in ill seasons of mourning. All of this talk about live this way and it will go well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. He will make your paths straight. What do you do when it just seems so bent? How do we make sense of a world where I can be on the phone with my dear friend who just lost his boy while my boy is still playing on the kitchen floor? Ecclesiastes speaks to this. It says, all is weary. A man cannot speak. Uh, we're tired from living in a world that doesn't make sense, that doesn't behave in the way that we feel like it should or that we are told that it should, a world that is backwards, uh, we're tired. Blessed are those who mourn. Really? What do you mean, Jesus? What, 
What even is blessing? What in hell are you talking about? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And I'm just being really honest with you. My initial very emphatic reaction is no, no, no. Who on earth in their right mind, if given the choice, who in their right mind would say that this, that mourning is better than feasting? Who, if given the choice, would take loss, would take this over gain? My friend with the affair news, I asked about this passage. What do you think about this? And they said, the house of mourning sucks, and my heart has not been made glad by this experience. I asked Dylan and Ashley, my friends who lost their son Micah, what they thought. What do you think about this passage? Dylan said, I think grief and mourning bring us face to face with the human condition and arguably closer to the God who lost a child and who experiences the pain of abandonment or neglect as humanity continually turns away from him. He said he thought that saying it is better to go to the house of mourning could be a turn on the idea that ignorance is bliss. It's blissful not to know pain or sorrow, but it also makes us aloof to the pain and the sorrow around us and so unable to comfort others. And what's, what, what we often do, what is kind of twisted, is that we've experienced this and then we try to pretend like we're still blissful, like we don't know, like everything is just okay. Dylan, remember Jesus saying, blessed are those who weep, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who weep, for they will laugh. And he wondered, he said, maybe it's just an understanding that true joy requires real knowledge of the possible tragic outcomes. Maybe there is a deeper level of joy on the other side of understanding. He said, maybe. Is he there? No. Still, though, even then, deep joy on the other side? It's not like anybody would trade their child or their parent or their innocence for a deeper understanding or a deeper appreciation of joy. But here's the truth. What Ecclesiastes, I think, knows that, that I don't always see is that we're not, we're not standing in like a neutral spot and being asked to choose, like, do you want a sad thing or do you want a happy thing? That's not what these verses are speaking to. They're just speaking to a world where loss and grief and mourning, they are inevitable realities. It is the world that we live in. We don't get to choose when we experience loss. We don't get to choose how we experience it. We don't get to choose the things that wreck our life and take us into seasons of mourning. Maybe at some point, though, we get to choose how we respond to it. And the thing is, and hear me, what some people say is, oh, you get to choose how you respond to it. Then choose to look on the bright side. That is not what I am saying. I am saying the exact opposite of that. That is foolishness. 
Because I think the right response is to choose to be heartbroken, to let that happen. Because it's honest, instead of just optimistically looking on the bright side, instead of just kind of glibly insisting on the positive potential of this terrible thing that happened to you. Silver linings and all that. Ecclesiastes says that's foolishness. The house of mourning, that's where the heart of the wise is. Not that mirthful people and joyful people are fools. That's not what this is saying. But it's foolish when we insist that we just want to live our whole lives in happiness, in mirth, in comfort, even when tragedy strikes. It's that they run to hide out in the house of mirth. Not listening, not listening. We do this. We live in a culture that is, like, obsessed with pleasure and comfort and happiness. We don't tolerate frustration and pain very well. Maybe we're, like, addicted to happiness. We build these houses of mirth out of entertainment and distractions and pleasurable experiences and vacations, and we just kind of hole up in those places. But Ecclesiastes says no. What it's not saying, again, is that we should just arbitrarily pursue pain. That we should just look for the next sad occasion. It is saying that we should not intentionally avoid it. When the time comes to mourn, don't pretend like it's otherwise. There's a line from Ecclesiastes that haunts me. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Wait, wait, wait. Going back to what I said before, what about our favorite high school graduate verse? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and he will make your paths straight? What are we to make of this in light of that? Isn't it, like, shouldn't it be the exact opposite? Like, who can make crooked what God has made straight? Winning. All the time winning. That's all we want. That's all we want God to do is just win and make it straight. And I read this verse, and I'm like, wait, is God causing these things? Is God causing tragedy? Does God just love pain and suffering? And he wants to put you through the ringer. And Ecclesiastes is kind of just telling us to like shut up and take it. Could we even say the same with Jesus and his beatitude? Is he saying that God loves suffering and he's giving you a really special blessing because of in suicide or in cancer or in assault or whatever? I want to speak cautiously. I don't speak for God. I don't claim to do that. I don't know everything. And I think there is a lot of mystery wrapped up in the events of our lives and however God plays into that. And I want to insist that God is totally free and does as he knows best. But I also want to insist to you that God is not a sadistic monster.
God is not causing these things. So let's think about the word crooked, because I don't think the word crooked means in the sense of like being perverse, that God is like twisted. I think crooked is like, I thought it was going to be like this, and it went the other way. It defies my sensibility. It defies my understanding. Eugene Peterson, he, he renders the verse this way. Take a good look at God's work. Who could simplify and reduce creation's curves and angles to a plain, straight line? And so maybe this is Ecclesiastes' way of saying what it has already been saying from the very first page. You guys know life is meaningless, meaningless. You guys know that from Ecclesiastes. That's the wrong word. That's a bad word. The Hebrew word is hevel. Life is hevel, which is smoke. Literally, smoke. It's like a metaphor. It's an image. Life, like smoke, it's, it's impermanent, it's obscuring, you can't see, and yet you have to pass through it. It's complex, and it's gnarly, and it's sprawling like a tree, when what I wanted was, like, I wanted life to be simple and flat and straight like a board. And so to try to explain it all, all of this, and it's like trying to catch smoke in your hand. It's like trying to Set a place for dinner on a tree branch. Like, it, it won't work. It doesn't make sense. There's not explanation. And so maybe we should let go and we should stop saying things that are trying to make straight what God has made crooked with our platitudes and our cheap, positive, optimistic reinforcement. Like, maybe we should stop trying to deny and delude and smooth over the pain by insisting, like, this is God's plan for you. Or this will all work out. Like maybe we should stop starting sentences to our grieving friends with at least. Maybe we should stop trying to tear down houses of mourning to put up these like flimsy shacks of mirth. When we find ourselves in it and facing it, Ecclesiastes says, face it. For as long as it's genuine, Inappropriate. Don't run from it. Okay, moving on to the Beatitude. What about Jesus? Is he going too far? When he says, uh, not just that it's wise to be in mourning when you're there, but when that's your reality, he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed? Blessed? How is it blessed, again, to lose a parent or a job? or child, or marriage. It's not, okay? It's not. Those who mourn are not blessed because of their losses. The blessing is not in the loss. It's like Komar was saying with the poor in spirit. Not blessed because you are poor in spirit. It's that there is, to the to the, to the contrary of what we would normally think, there is some blessedness that even tragic loss cannot steal and cannot destroy. And I hear, and if you are one of these people and you are offended at what I'm saying right now, I completely understand that. I understand how offensive it is. And hear everything else I'm saying. I'm not just trying to take it and spin it into something good. It's not good. It's bad. But there is still blessedness for those who are in mourning. I think he's saying something similar to Ecclesiastes, really. He's saying, blessed are those who experience and see the horrors of the world, and they choose not to look away. Because what about this? Maybe loss is unavoidable. It really is. It's unavoidable. But maybe mourning isn't unavoidable. Like, 
No one can truly avoid both the ex- the both experiencing and causing brokenness in this world. No one can avoid that, but anyone can pretend that they haven't, can pretend that they haven't experienced brokenness or pretend that they haven't caused brokenness. But Jesus says, blessed are those who feel anguish over the pain of their own lives and over the lives of those around them instead of insisting on the bright side. Blessed are those who choose to mourn because... They've stopped worshiping a false god. They've stopped worshiping a false god whose job is to make everything pleasant and comfortable all the time. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How shall they be comforted? Because they discover the God who is, the God who is there when they mourn. Not the one who's floating above everything with magic wands and granting wishes. Not the one with answers. Not the one with answers. Does God have answers? Sure. My friends who lost their son, they knew that they weren't going to find comfort in answers, even if they had them. So, okay, so you understand it all. You understand why it happened. Does that remove the loss? Those who mourn discover the God who is with them in their suffering. How is God with them? How is God to be with those who are mourning? If you've been listening so far in this series, you may know where I'm going to go with this. It has something to do with us living as the disciples. But let me say this carefully first. Certainly the comfort of God does not come only through us. Our comfort does not stand in wholesale for God's comfort. It doesn't replace it. I'm sure that there is a comfort that God does give to people in the here and now in mysterious ways and at unexpected times that we as Jesus partners have nothing to do with. I'm sure that that happens. But also, certainly, it comes through us. And that it comes in mysterious times and ways and unexpected places is not an excuse for us to sit around ignoring the mourning that's going on around us. It comes through us. And I know that this is hard for us. How how do we console? What can I say? What can I offer? I get it. It makes us uncomfortable. We feel inadequate. We don't know what to say. But again, friends, remember that what what is needed are not answers or solutions because there are questions with no answers and there are problems with no solutions. You don't have to have it. When Micah died and I went to Dylan and Ashley's house that day, I was with my friend Chris Nation. He's spoken here before. And we're sitting in the car on the curb in the street outside Dylan and Ashley's house. We haven't gone in yet. And I told him, I said, I feel nervous. I said, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. He said, uh, he said, Reed, grief is a dance. Um, and you let them lead. And if they want to talk, you talk. And if they want to be silent, You be silent. They just need a partner in their dance of grief. We see this in Jesus. You guys know the story about Lazarus dying? 
Lazarus had two sisters, Martha and Mary. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And I love this, and this is what a lot of us want to skip to, like this, we want to be this. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You're going to see him on the last day. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. There's another sister. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, what did she say? Exact same thing her sister said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her were also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? They both start the same way. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. We all feel it. It is okay to point the finger. It's okay. There are a lot of Psalms that are in your corner when you're like, God, where are you? You're hiding from me? You're going to do this to me? Job is in your corner. He says it throughout the book. You're going to treat me like this and then run off and hide? It's okay to express that. If you'd been here, you would not have died. Jesus does not answer that. Doesn't respond to it. Doesn't offer a defense. Doesn't offer an explanation. Oh, well, but what you don't understand is it actually works. No, he doesn't do any of that. Martha, her response, she wants to hope. She wants to hope. Look at what she says. Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And they kind of have this theological discussion. That's what she wants to do. And what does Jesus do? He meets her where she is at. And he wrestles along with her. And he talks about being the resurrection and the life. And he deepens that hope. But Mary, not what she's looking for. Her response is to fall and to weep, and that's okay. And how does Jesus respond? Her grief catalyzes him, and he becomes deeply troubled himself. Greatly troubled. At other times when he tells, do not be troubled, to his disciples, this is the same language. Jesus is now troubled because he is responding to her in her grief. And some people in the crowd, they find that inspirational. Look, look how he loves her. For others, it's not enough. Yeah, well, if he can restore the sight of the blind, why couldn't he have kept this guy from dying? Again, no explanation offered. He consistently will not do that. He will not try to avoid the reality of the loss. It is there but he stays in the house of mourning with them in the ways that they are there. 
He does not make straight what God has made crooked. He does not smooth out what is rough, but he comforts those who mourn. And he weeps, and I know that he's going to raise Lazarus, okay? That's going to happen. Despite the hope of the resurrection, despite his power over death, despite the fact that he is going to raise Lazarus in just a few verses, he is still with them there, grieving. It doesn't cheapen it. You can look at it that way, but you don't have to look at it that way. Because on the timeline of infinity, sure, all of these things are going to be made right, we hope and believe and pray. And yet, we sit in it now. And that moment for Mary and Martha, like, yeah, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus in a few sentences, but that moment of loss, like those, you become time, things become timeless, like in tragic moments, and it's like, it feels like it just kind of goes on forever, whether it's a minute, whether it's an hour. This is what we call divine sympathy. Where is God in the pain? He's with them. Not waving the wand. He's with them. Whatever that looks like, because mourning sometimes is sadness, but sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's grasping for hope. Sometimes mourning is acceptance. How will God comfort? In many ways, we hope and pray, but not just in the things that we hope and pray for. We can't just sit back and hope and pray. God will comfort through the partners who are willing to be like Jesus is being here, to go to the hurting and to be with them as he is. So Chris and I, we spent that day five years ago. We sat in complete silence with Dylan and Ashley. We said not a thing for over an hour, and then we left, and we didn't say anything. We said nothing. It didn't mean nothing. Maybe what our grieving friends need is presence, not explanations, not reassurances that everything is going to be okay. Maybe what they need is for you just to be with them. Ashley, Micah's mom, said, it displays wisdom and maturity to enter into someone else's pain and foolishness to ignore their pain or grief or give superficial positivity. And I don't tell you guys this so you can think about how great I am at, like, comforting people. But just to encourage you, like, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I can follow Jesus where he's going and try to be there. And to encourage you along with me to be his disciples and to try to bless others in the ways that he is blessing them. The ones that he's calling blessed. The ones who are out in their sadness. We can go and be with them. So after I left that day, Dylan and I talked on the phone every week for two years. And let me tell you, I feel and I felt very inadequate for this job. I'm not a master grief counselor. I don't know all of the answers. But week in and week out, what I could do was pick up the phone and call him. And the comfort of God, just in that simple space, it came through what partial ways and little things that I could do. You can't do it all. You don't have to. And let me say this. You won't do it all. There's, there is certainly a comfort that my friends will always be waiting for. 
that will not come through me no matter what I do because Micah is still gone and the ache will always last until the end comes and God makes all things right and they see their boy again. And bless God that I hope this will be what happens one day. But we can help drag some of that comfort forward into the present now in some ways. We've been back to their house numerous times in the last five and a half years. And it's still a house of mourning, because like I said, Micah's not there. You're never really done grieving a child, of course. But the spirit of that place, it has changed. Their loss, their willingness to not avoid the pain has turned into something else. And it's like there's this kind of like this kind of attentiveness, a patience, a cherishing, a tenderness that I think only comes on the other side of great loss. And it looks like a kind of comfort uh, that I think is only found in the weeping and hoping presence of God himself. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. So now may we name our loss. May we name it and may we mourn it. And may we not push God out with our explanations and our rationalizations and our optimism, but may we bring him in with our presence, pale and insufficient as it might be. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that there is much that I don't understand. I don't. And I feel the ache. Lord, we're, we're a crowd of people. And some of us you've healed and others are still waiting. And we're following, we're following you around like a mob on a hillside, just hanging on to what you will say. And I, I don't understand a lot of it. Help me to trust when you say that when we mourn, we are still blessed. Sometimes it makes me feel really angry to think about that. Would you give us eyes to see as we live in the house of mourning? Would you give us eyes to see what that blessing is, what it looks like? Would you give us eyes to see the God who is really there? The God who is there. 
And Lord, I hope and I pray and I know it will be if we can just see it that the presence will be enough. We really do need you. We really do. And would you help us? We, we who, who love you, who call ourselves by your name, would you help us to have compassion? And in our fumbling and in our confusion and in our bumbling words, would you help us just to have the courage to go and be with the ones who are hurting and mourning? And Lord, our empty hands. The miracle, Lord, is that you sometimes let us give what we don't even have. Help us, Jesus. Jesus.